Good morning. Uh, if you've been with us, then you know that we've been going through the book of Jonah. And last week we talked about how the book of Jonah really is a book that belongs to everyone, because at some point, probably in your childhood, you heard the story of Jonah and the whale. And, uh, and so many of us think of this story as a children's story. But as we said last week, uh, many, um, many uh, public intellectuals are looking back at the story of Jonah, uh, not because it's a children's story, but because it's dealing with very relevant adult issues, issues that adults uh, contend with, uh, and some of the same problems that we're struggling with today around our understanding of our relationship to our nation, our understanding of uh, our relationship to our neighbors, uh, racial uh, equality, racial superiority, those all those same problems that we're str struggling with today, Jonah is contending with too. And so people as diverse as Tim Keller and Ta-Nehisi Coates are going back and they're looking at this book. And so we're going to go ahead and we're going to do that too. And last week, uh, we learned that Jonah had experienced friendship with God in ways that really few other people have. And yet, uh, we also saw that he'd rather be hurled into the sea than simply re-engage God and quiet a storm. That's what we saw. You know, as New Yorkers, we love to watch people because when we do, and there's so many interesting people here in this city that when we do, we learn about something by observing the things that they do. We learn about them by observing the things that they say. And so last week, we observed how Jonah rejected the call of God due to pride and pain, which led to his hatred of others. And this week, we see that he's on the run. And he's unwilling and unable to return to God due to shame and regret. But despite his running from God, God pr pursues him. God pursues Jonah, even by way of a storm, even through a storm. And because our relationship is with God is, is not unlike Jonah's, where we hear from God, perhaps, and I, I say hear in quotes, where we where we experience God and we flee and perhaps we return because our relationship with God is not that different than Jonah's. We can learn a lot today. So let's just consider three things from uh, this passage. And uh, let's consider Jonah's regret, Jonah's storm, and Jonah's brothers. And I'm going to give you those three categories uh, beforehand, so you can consider them as I read the passage. And this is what the passage says. This is Jonah uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 16, excuse me, 17. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with him to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, go, 
go uh, arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid, and they said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, what shall we do to you? That the sea may be quiet, that the sea may quiet down for us. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not. For the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, have done as it, it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. That is 1 through 16 of the first chapter of Jonah. And so we said we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Jonah's regret. We're going to look at Jonah's storm. And we're going to look at Jonah's brothers. So first, Jonah's regret. As soon as Jonah flees, he shows signs of regret. He shows signs that his life is in decline. And you can observe it in the things he says and the things that he does. Look at what takes place after Jonah rejects the Lord. He goes down, 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 down. First, he goes down into Joppa, then down into the ship, again, down into the inner part of the ship. And then he went even further down by laying down and going fast to sleep. So what can we make of this? What can we observe? What the author is trying to tell us, what Jonah is trying to tell us, is that in, is not only is he heading in the wrong direction, but because he's going in the wrong direction, he's on the decline He's descending deeper and deeper into what I'm going to say is despondency. Now, how can we know that? Because just like the ship, uh, Jonah is also coming undone, and he's not responding. Uh, in Tim Keller's book, uh, I think it's called Recovering Jonah, he quotes Hugh Martin. Hugh Martin is a 17th century uh, pastor, and Hugh Martin says that Jonah was sleeping the sleep of sorrow. Uh, the desire to escape reality, even for a little while, which is something that we can all relate to, isn't it? Um, Hugh Martin says that he was profoundly spent. He was exhausted, drained by powerful emotions of guilt, and anger, anxiety, and grief. So he's on the decline, right? So this is fairly poetic storytelling, but it's also a fairly accurate depiction of someone who's descended into depression. Long time ago, I knew a person who, for very different reasons, was in a similar condition. This person spent long stretches in bed, in a great deal of turmoil, unable to engage the world. One day, this, this person went to the kitchen to prepare a meal and accidentally returned to bed, leaving something burning on the stove. Uh, when the alarm went off, they either couldn't or wouldn't get out of bed. 
And then when the fire department arrived sometime later, the fire uh, uh, firemen broke into the apartment. Of course, they did whatever they needed to do to put out the fire. Uh, they looked around the place. They saw that nobody was there and they left. So my friend, this person, was in the apartment, unable to get out of bed, unable to engage the world. They left without ever even knowing that the person responsible for the alarm, the person who was responsible for the fire, was inside the apartment. Though the house was coming undone, the house was in the midst of great chaos, this person was despondent, unable to react to the chaos all around him. And so we see that exact same thing for different reasons with Jonah. But we don't just see that with his actions, we see that with his words. Of the half dozen or so questions that they ask him, uh, he only responds to two. He responds to questions concerning his identity. In verse 9, Jonah answers the question about who he is. He says, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. And then, as a response to the question in verse 8, which is, on account of whose evil has this storm come, Jonah responds, I'll paraphrase, on account of me. It's my fault. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, he says. And if you do that, all will be calm. So notice, when asked who he, uh, who he is, he responds by doing what? By identifying with his nation first. And secondly, by identifying with his God. And we'll talk about more of that in the coming weeks, but that's not insignificant, scholars say. Further, uh, we see evidence here into just how far Jonah thinks that he himself has descended, his own opinions about how far he's descended. Because here he's confessing that despite his prophetic office, that he, that he too has rejected the God of Israel, and that he too has brought his own evil to affect the lives of others. In other words, Jonah sees in this moment, he recognizes in this moment, that he's no better than the Ninevites. That he's guilty of the very same things that he hated them for. Now, because this is written by Jonah, because all of this is understood, all of this is conveyed in hindsight, all of this is upon reflection, Jonah wants us to see now what he couldn't see then. That turning or returning to God is just far more difficult. It's far more complicated than you and I actually realize. You know, as a pastor, I routinely hear people say, you know, I'm not against God. I'd like to believe in God, if only, right? And what they're trying to convey is that they've not arrived at their position on God um, because of any ill feelings towards God, but they've simply just arrived at this feelings because of a rational argumentation, you might say. But I just want to push back on that just a little bit, because in my experience, when it comes to running from God, whether you're a person of Christian faith or not, it's never the intellectual argumentation that drives a person. It's always the unexamined emotions underneath the surface, right? We're not just brains on sticks. We're whole, whole creatures. We're creatures of emotion and intellect. And so when we run from God, 
uh, it's my experience that uh, we tend to justify our thoughts that are based actually on our emotions. They're, they're born out of our emotions and maybe our inability to deal with our emotions. So often uh, it's our unexamined emotions which determine the decision-making even in the most rational of thinkers. I mean, look at Jonah. Jonah says, I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, the God who made the sea and the dry land. So what is he doing? He's, Jonah admits God is God. He admits what he worships. He knows intellectually that in worshiping the God, he, that he worships the God who made the sea. He knows intellectually that this God can solve this problem of the raging storm. But how does he choose to, res choose to respond to it? He says, throw me over the side. Why? Because he'd rather be thrown over the side than deal with the Lord. He'd rather be thrown over the side to calm the storm rather than face the Lord in the boat in front of the people and repent and turn to him and quiet the storm. So he wants to help save these other people, right? But he'd rather die than have to turn to the Lord. Does that come out of his mindset or does it come out of his emotions? his unexamined emotions. Well, what about you and I? Why don't we want to examine our emotions? Probably because it's pretty difficult, isn't it? It's hard to turn and face ourselves. It's so much easier to point the finger outward, maybe even point the finger towards God. But we also recognize, just like Jonah did, that if we turn towards God, then there are going to be implications. I mean, imagine if we, you and I were to turn towards God, then there's going to be implications for our lives. Perhaps we're going to have to forgive that one person that we just cannot forgive. Or perhaps we're going to maybe have to marry the person that I'm, you're living with. Or you're going to have to move out. See, there are going to be implications. Maybe you're going to have to go through all the motions, right, of breaking your lease and hiring movers and, and actually moving out for a time and even putting that uh, that relationship uh, into the hands of the Lord, which is a scary thing to do. Or perhaps we have to just simply admit that we're not as sure of things as, as we think we are. Or maybe it's just simply fear of, of speaking to our, our parents or to our employees whose worldviews are incompatible with uh, Christianity. And therefore those conversations are hard and, and you know, we might risk uh, disapproval, right? See, God is saying, uh, God is saying that if we ask questions, not just of our intellect, but of our emotions, that we don't leave them unexamined, that we might not lose our way. You know, that's an African proverb. The one who asks questions doesn't lose his way, but Jonah's silent and he's lost at sea. And yet God is determined to break through, to get his attention. And therefore, what does he do? He sends a storm. In response to Jonah's fleeing, in verse four, it says that God hurls a storm at Jonah, which means this is a storm for Jonah, but it's also a storm brought about by Jonah. So we just established that Jonah also takes responsibility here, doesn't he? He says, it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Now, the idea that God would send something into Jonah's life seems violent and rash to you and I. We must think there has to be a better way. Um, 
But Jonah doesn't think that. He understands this is the way that the world works. The storm, he knows, is part of what is called God's retributive justice. Now, retributive justice is the inevitable breakdown that occurs when you go against God's desire and when you go against God's design for you and I. For example, if we eat or sleep and don't take care of ourselves, we might feel sluggish, right? Why? Because woven into the fabric of the universe are corrective measures that, in a sense, reward honoring God, reward respecting his creation. Uh, uh, there's uh, <clears throat> corrective measures that, that encourage us uh, to honor the way that we're made. When we love him and others, we shouldn't be surprised if we experience delight or purpose or, or wellness or peace. However, retributive justice is the breakdown that we experience when we do just the opposite. In fact, much of the wisdom literature of the Bible encourages humanity towards a lifestyle that leads to flourishing. Much of the book of Proverbs and the wisdom literature in the Bible speaks directly to this. Those who guard their lips uh, preserve their lives, but those who speak rashly will come to ruin, says Proverbs 13.3. Now, Proverbs 27, whoever seeks good finds favor, but evil comes to the one who searches for it. You know, Desmond Tutu, uh, in talking about the idea of retributive justice, and of course, Desmond Tutu is the, is the famous um, Anglican priest from, from South Africa. He says that, you know, when Western people think of retributive justice, they think about uh, when one person clobbers another, you can just clobber them right back. But he says in Africa, retributive justice is far more restorative. Not so much to punish, he says, as to redress or restore a balance that has been knocked askew. And I really appreciate that um, because not only uh, does that uh, ring true to my heart, it rings true to the Bible. The Bible, when it talks about retributive justice, is far more restorative. See, God uses his purposes and human agency to pursue Jonah through the storm and through the mariners. Both the storm and the sailors we see work redemptively to bring Jonah to his senses. And why is all of that important? Why, why do we need to know that? Because when you're in a storm, any storm in your life, you need to know that God's in control and that he will use all things for your good. He will use both his sovereign power and our human agency for your good. Where do we see that? Look, what it says that, they, that the sailors rolled the dice right? They, they cast lots. That's like a parlor game. And in casting lots, what took place? It came up Jonah. So there you see 100% God's sovereignty and 100% human agency. And that's what the Bible calls compatibleness. <laughs> Where else do you see that? You see that when um, the sailors go down to confront Jonah when he's asleep, 100% human agency, but the words that come out of his mouth are in a sense, the same words, the same call that Jonah had heard at the very beginning, right? Arise. See, God is using human agency and his sovereignty. He's using retributive justice to restore Jonah here, to restore Jonah. You know, I have my own Jonah moment. You know, at one time in my life, I had received some very good news 
I was so excited. I thought my life was, my ship had come in, you might say. And I, I received it on a phone call and I was in on Madison Avenue in the 30s. And I hung up the phone and I, I prayed a prayer. And I said, thank you, God, for this great blessing. Now, would you just leave me alone? And essentially, I didn't trust God for what I was going into because I wanted to just live life without him. I thought my plan was more fun than his. Foolish. And over the next year and a half, what did I experience? Retributive justice. I walked away from God. Uh, and so many things began to simply fall apart. Sense of identity, a lot of pain and suffering, um, a lot of lostness, a lot of despondency, to be honest with you. I was lost at sea. And eventually, you know, uh, I came back, uh, came back uh, to the Lord. He brought me back, I should say. And in uh, over time, over a couple of years, I ended up getting involved with a church, Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City, a church of love, and decided to become a member of that church. And on the way to the membership class, I realized as I was about to walk into the building that I was about 150 feet from where I prayed that prayer. I'd gone away and come back. I went, uh, you know, three years out of my way. <laughs> but God brought me back, and I'm thankful that he did. So let's not get ahead of ourselves, right? Because Jonah is still running. And still he has even greater depths to descend to. But in Jonah's storm, one we see here, one that is purpose-built for him, specific for him. But that's not all. This storm is actually meant for the mariners too. It's meant for the sailors as well. Because through Jonah's storm, God, they come to serve the true and living God. See, they're not just supernumeraries in the story of Jonah. They are living beings whom God loves. Jonah, though he tried to run from God, the call of God to reach a new people. God said, I'm going to do this through you, whether you like it or not. And he's, I'm going to extend my family. I'm going to bring people from outside the nation of Israel into this nation. And you know what I'm going to, and therefore, you know what that means? These pagans in this boat, they're going to be your brothers. The third point, Jonah's brothers. Jonah treats these pagans as hired hands. But how do they treat him? They treat him with care and concern. They treat him with respect. They treat, treat Jonah's God with respect. But even before they bow down and worship God, you see, there at the end, Tim Keller says that they outshine Jonah in every way. See, even before they were actually spiritual brothers, they treated Jonah as though they were brothers. And they realized something, Tim says, that Jonah doesn't, which is that despite their differences, they're literally all in the same boat. And that's the exact attitude that Storefront Church hopes to have here in this neighborhood. We're all in the same boat. See, if you have the vantage point of God, then you know that there's, there is a storm along the high line. There's always been a storm along the high line. And therefore, no matter who you are in this neighborhood, my problems are your problems, just like the pagans, right? And Jonah, my problems are your problems, your problems are my problems. We're all in the same boat. 
We all have to help each other. We all have to navigate the storms, not only of our personal lives, to help each other navigate the storms of our personal lives, but we have to navigate the storms of this neighborhood, whether it's expansion and urban renewal or it's gentrification. There are good things and there are horrible things in this neighborhood. There are great things in the city. There are evil things in the city. They're all of our problem. We're all in the same boat. And Christians, we need to realize uh, what Jonah didn't, and that is, is that private faith is of no public good. Repeatedly, the sailors, what do they do? They implore Jonah to arise, to call on his God. Essentially, they're saying to him, take all of your resources and bring it to this situation. Now is no time to sleep. The problems are too great. The storm is too huge. Don't be overly introspective about your calling to the degree that you're not helping people right in front of you. Take out your private faith. It's for public good. People may think they don't want it, but when the storm comes, we need it. Take out your private faith for the public good and watch what the Lord can do. course, why would we do any of this, right? Because that's what Jesus did. As it turns out, Jonah, Jonah, uh, as it turns out, Jonah's uh, <clears throat> brothers weren't all in that boat. As it turns out, Jonah's best brother uh, was not in the boat, but Jonah's best brother was the storm. You know, in Mark 4, Jesus is sleeping in a boat. And He's surrounded by his disciples. And interestingly, a storm comes upon the Sea of Galilee. And his crew, the disciples, they say just about the same things that these pagans said to Jonah. They say, why are you asleep? And you know what his response is? In a sense, I've been here before. And what does he do? He stands in the middle of the boat and he quiets the storm. He calms the storm with his word. To show us what? That he is the Lord of the storm. See, that storm came for Jonah, but Jesus is the truer and greater Jonah who stands in the midst of that storm and calms it. And of course, he quiets uh, all the storms in our life. Why? Because he took on sin and death, which is the greatest storm that we all face, right? Jonah quieted the storm and saved the crew by being thrown into the water. But it's on the cross that Jesus quieted the greatest storm to save the world with his life. And he calls us to trust us and to look to him in the midst of the storms in our life. To trust him uh, that there is no storm that he won't see us through. That's our prayer. That's our hope. That's our posture towards this neighborhood as we enter into this ministry. Uh, let us learn these things so that we can be braver, wiser, more loving to those in our midst, in the midst of all of our storms. We pray this in Jesus. Uh, let me pray in Jesus' name. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for uh, this passage. Help us to learn what this means. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.